Yo, 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 you're tuned in to Jimmy D Radio, where we discuss how to shift your beliefs, build your confidence, and transform your life. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today, and I have a very special treat for you guys. I interviewed one of my role models, one of my inspirations, but before I tell you who that is, um, if this is your first time tuning in to Jimmy D Radio, welcome. I'm Jimmy DeFalco, your host. And I'm a recovering drug addict. Um, I got clean a little less than three years ago. And ever since then, I've made it my mission to share with people how I was able to create true change from within. You know, prescription pill abuse and heroin is an epidemic right now. And uh, like I said, I truly feel it is my responsibility and my duty to have got out alive on the other side of that terrible epidemic to share my story, share my experience. And I hope that you guys can take away a few things from this amazing interview today that I had with former pro BMXer, former 2016 Rio Olympics BMX coach. Tony Hoffman. Tony is also in recovery like myself. He's 11 years clean since 2007. Um, Tony has an amazing story. He went from being on top of the world in high school on the covers of magazines to a few years later being homeless on the streets with no one to turn to and nowhere to go. He actually ended up going to prison for a few years. And ever since Tony got out, he not only has changed his life, but he's changing people's lives every single day. Like I said, not many people go from prison to BMX World Championships and the Olympics. But the crazy thing is, that's not even the most impressive part about Tony. Tony is the most sought-after substance abuse speaker in the country. He travels to colleges, high schools, community events, uh, business seminars, and he speaks about substance abuse, about mindset, about mental health. And he, like I said, is one of my role models, one of my inspirations, and I can only hope that I am a fraction of the influence that he, that he is right now to me and to so many kids because if you follow him on social media, if you're not, you need to already, Tony Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, the messages he gets from these kids in high school are truly amazing and they'll make the hair stand up on your body. So without further ado, enjoy this amazing interview and this amazing story with Tony Hoffman. Tony Hoffman, how you doing, man? Thanks so much for joining us on Jimmy D Radio today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Good, yeah. So, um, you know, I just gave you a little intro, but I just want to let you know personally that you're one of my role models, you're one of my inspirations, and, you know, what you're doing right now with everything you have going on, your speaking, um, you know, your free will project, everything, you're really making such a huge impact on the world, so... Um, you know, just thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, um, you know, to drop some knowledge on myself and my listeners. We all really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the kind words, and I'm glad uh, I can be an inspiration or, or somebody you look up to with the, you know, line of work that uh, we're both doing. And so uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm like I said, I'm, I'm happy to be here and to share my story with you. Yeah, so, you know, about your story, I've been following you for a long time. I know um, I've heard your story a number of times, but 
Um, why don't you, you know, tell my listeners a little bit about, you know, your past history and kind of what got you to where you are today. Absolutely. So I've always been an athlete. If you, if you know anything about my story or if you listen to uh, your IG story earlier, you know, I was a coach at the Olympics in 2016 and that was kind of uh, the transition out of playing sports to coaching sports, but was always an athlete when I was a kid and gifted at all sports was kind of a unique athlete that I wasn't uh, a one trick pony. I could pretty much play every sport, but found my passion in BMX racing. I think it was probably the way it should have been. My dad was a professional motocross racer growing up. And so, you know, the individual extreme sport kind of, I think just fit the bill better for, for myself. And so I got race involved in racing at 12 years old. By the time I was in high school, uh, my senior year, I had reached the cover of the BMX or racing magazine, was ranked number one in the country, and had, you know, several different endorsement deals. And things looked like it was going to be a smooth road to, to success, um, but it wasn't. It was actually quite the opposite. It was as bumpy as it gets. And I would say one thing that I really put a lot of stressors on was uh, even though I was an athlete, I struggled with mental health issues like depression, suicidal thoughts. I had a lot of anxiety, still have a lot of anxiety and social anxiety issues that I was dealing with, you know, from 12 years old all the way through my drug addiction years and never really addressed those, didn't know how to address those. So high school was really tough. You know, if I had my helmet on, I was okay. But when I took my helmet off from racing, I, you know, I just really struggled internally and I think that that's why my road to success really wasn't as smooth as people thought because people were judging me exteriorly. They were judging me based on, you know, being sponsored by Fox or sponsored by Airwalk Shoes or sponsored by Spy Sunglasses. And, man, this kid's got to be successful is, is what people would say, or this kid's destined to be successful uh, as a professional athlete. But um, I started using using drugs when I was 18, and just started like everybody else, you know, smoking weed, drinking too. Drinking never really was my thing, but uh started smoking weed. And what I didn't realize was that that was going to develop into more extreme areas. But at the time, they didn't seem like they were extreme because at 18 years old, when we got introduced to popping pills, uh, we all just assumed it was safe because it came from a doctor. You know, when we were in school, we had the D.A.R.E. program. The D.A.R.E. program told us to stay away from heroin methamphetamine, cocaine, PCP. Those were an acid. Those were the heavy drugs. And then marijuana was the gateway drug. And so they didn't list Vicodin. Mm-hmm. They didn't list Percocet. They didn't list Valium. They didn't list Xanax. They didn't list Adderall. They didn't list all of these things that came out of the orange bottle that really just mimicked the street drugs and had a medicated name tag to it so it was like yeah it wasn't crystal meth but Adderall is the same damn thing if you take enough of those pills it does the same thing as crystal meth uh, and most people don't know that but so when we were yeah kids, I we really were, I really think I'm, I'm sorry to interject but I really think over the last maybe five to seven years um, you know the epidemic has really taken form in, in regards to prescription pill abuse and um, in large thanks to you and other people like you you guys are, you know, trying to shed as much light as possible onto this, you know, terrible epidemic in that just because a doctor gives it to you doesn't mean it's okay. That's And that's that's the hard part, though, is because the way the school system works and the way society works in the United States is 
we go to the doctor to get fixed. We go to the doctor for the answer, and we believe that the doctor has our best interest in heart. And while they might have our best interest at heart, they're also going to push what the pharmaceutical companies send their sales reps in there to push. And so when they develop a new drug, they want that drug in the hands of people because that's how that drug company is making money. And that's when things kind of start to get clouded is where's the, where's the, the, the moral compass start and end with what we're giving people? And so we go in there and we think that the doctor is giving us the answer. And a lot of times the doctor is giving us a new problem. And it's worse than the problem we went in there for. And we hear about that all the time with all kinds of medications. The side effects are almost worse than the actual problem that you had. So that was what started my whole spiral downwards. Started at 18 years old, was using Vicodin, and then I got introduced to Oxycontin. And within three years of using Oxycontin, I was um, inside a home committing a home invasion robbery. You know, and I try to tell people, three years past that moment, I was – I was on the cover of a magazine. Everybody thought I was going to be successful. And I would have told you if you stopped me my senior year and you said, three years from now, you're going to be inside a home robbing on the gunpoint, I would have said, no way, not me. How? How do you, how do you, how do you even think that that could be possible? That'll never be me. I'll never do something like that. But I didn't realize mm-hmm. that the orange bottle was no different than the stuff that came from the cartel. It was just packaged different. And so my life had been completely taken over by these pharmaceutical painkillers. One of the things that I try to really explain to people is, because a lot of people believe that addiction is a choice and that I chose the lifestyle I went through. I chose for the things that I went through in my darkest hour. That was a choice. And it was like, no. The only choice I had was to smoke weed for the first time. I didn't get to choose whether or not I was going to be the drug addict in the family. My brother grew up in the same household. Parents been married for 44 years. We had every sports piece of equipment we needed. We went to the best schools, some of the best schools in the country. We had everything that normal family or, quote, normal families have. My brother can sit down and have drink a half a beer. I, I can't do that. Never been able to do that. My brother's never even used drugs. It wasn't his yeah. choice. That's just he's different genetically than I am. When it comes to using, I didn't I didn't realize that we don't get to choose whether or not we're going to be the drug addict. That's just not the way it works. You walk through this door when you make that first choice, and you find out once you walk through the door that you are or you aren't a drug addict. And the ones that find out that they are, they go through a long battle, most people, a long battle before they're able to claw themselves back through the other side of the door. And that's because you have to change every single thing about your life. You can't half-step recovery. It doesn't work. It's not like bagging groceries at the local grocery store. You don't have to give 100% to do that. If you want to get off of drugs or change your life or change something about yourself or improve yourself, it has to be 100%. And you have to change everything starting from the mind all the way out to the forward actions, your habits, your routine, all of that stuff has to change. And that's why so many people don't find recovery because one, they're in situations that most people, normal people can't overcome. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, man. It kind of goes to tie in what you said. Um, when you were younger, you still had that social anxiety. You still kind of had that depression. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of things start with addicts. 
that they're that kind of don't feel comfortable in their own skin unless you know you were on your bike. So you know the when way I, that you felt comfortable was to use drugs. When I took pharmaceutical painkillers for the first time, my mind immediately said, "This is the way I should have felt my whole life." <laughs> Dude, the same exact way. My anxiety was gone. My depression was gone. I, I, I wasn't at parties to talk to people because, you know, it, it, despite me being a public speaker and have spoken in front of, you know, sometimes crowds of 7,000 people, uh, I have social anxiety issues. But when I was on the uh, pharmaceutical painkillers, I didn't have that anymore. So I thought it was the answer. It took me to a level of feeling good about myself that I just had to have. But I didn't realize that that was going to be a very short-lived process before there would be a rebound that would take me down further. And so I committed that robbery in 2004. I was 21 years old. I was arrested in 2005. My co-defendants kept robbing people, and they finally got busted. When they got busted, they pulled on me uh, to get a lighter sentence. And so my parents spent a bunch of money on an attorney. I hadn't actually seen them in three years. And they kicked me out of the house, and I was out on my own. Uh, not homeless, but at that time, but out on my own. And my parents came back into my life by buying this attorney and trying to get me to change my life. And this attorney kept me out of prison. I got a, a, a stayed prison sentence uh, with an opportunity on felony probation, which was really um, about the, the amount of money my parents spent on the attorney. He was well-connected, and my co-defendant. His dad was the lead robbery squad detective of the Fresno PD. And so we know that cops get special treatment. Well, so do their kids. And my other co-defendant was a really smart kid, graduated with a 4.0. And we were all three white kids from the good side of town. So we were able to to kind of dodge the prison sentence initially. Um, and so that's what happened. I, I dodged a prison sentence, was given five years felony probation, 90 days in a treatment center, and a bunch of drug programs that I was supposed to complete while I was on felony probation. But, you know, within 30 days, I was I was drinking because I told myself I could yeah. just drink and ended up getting in a fight, knocked this guy's tooth out. Well, two weeks later, I almost lost my arm because I had an infection so bad it was, like, up to my uh, shoulder. And so I had to have wow. surgery. Yeah, I had to have surgery, and they gave me fentanyl and Vicodin, which sent me right back out. And then for the next two and a half years, almost three years, you know, that was, that was my, my dark, my darkest dark because I, I literally lost all my friends over the course of that two and a half years, started shooting dope. Uh, I couldn't afford the pills anymore. So I switched to heroin, switched and, uh, you know, started smoking meth and slamming meth and, you know, cocaine was, I always mixed cocaine with heroin. That was, that was my thing with speedballing and living in hotels. And then finally, you know, the night came in 2006 when I just I had no money, had no friends, and so I started sleeping on the street. And that's just not it's just not a place anybody wants to be. You know, I have having gone through that um I look at homeless people and their situation so much different because yeah, that's can you tell us a little bit about that like what your mindset was when you finally 
you know, realize, you know, you're all alone, you're on the street, you, a few, you know, four or five years ago, you were on a magazine cover. What was your mindset, like your internal dialogue at that time? So I remember, and this is a story I tell when I'm on the road, I remember my best friend Nate, he's been dead for 10 years now. Um, I walked to his house because he always used to give me a place to stay and food to eat, and so I walked to his house because I needed a place to stay. And his dad answered the door and said, Mijo, you can't stay here anymore. And I was just kind of like, what? And they'd heard I was stealing credit cards, which I wasn't. So they, you know, didn't want me in the house anymore. And so I went into Nate's room and asked him for a sleeping bag. And he gives me a sleeping bag. And I remember walking out of Nate's house. And as I'm walking out towards the high school I graduated from in 2002, this is where I was going to go sleep under the baseball stadium in the announcer's tower because it was, it was raining. And mm-hmm. I heard Nate's voice, and he says, Hoff. And I turned around, and I said, yeah. And he said, look at yourself, bro. What are you doing? And I said, don't worry about it, Nate. I got it. And I turned around, and I walked to the high school, and I, I set this sleeping bag up in the announcer's tower. And, and, and I was fun out on meth, and so I wasn't quite ready to, to lay down. So I started walking around town, and I just remember, you know, processing there's nobody left. Like, I'm literally all alone. And I think that was the first time that even while I was on drugs, like, I was having to feel. You know, because I was yeah. on drugs and I was always at a party. I was on drugs and I was always busy and I never had to feel. I never had to feel. I never had to stop and experience pain. Mm-hmm. Emotion. And I think experiencing that pain really drives us to change. If we don't ever really feel that, there's no reason for us to change. No, right. I think the pain is part of the process, but, but in that moment, the pain, the pain was so heavy in shame and the pain was so heavy in guilt. The shame was so heavy in self-pity. Yeah. It wasn't like I need to change. I, I could yeah, there's different I, forms of that pain. I think we go through different stages of that pain. Right, and I think that, I mean, a lot of that depends on, you know, where you're at and, and, and what you're feeding yourself so you can you can overcome that, that shame and that guilt and, and, and self-pity and depression and, and anything else that uh, we can come up with. But at that, that day, I accepted that I was going to die soon. I wasn't motivated. Um, wow, so, like, you literally thought to yourself, like, I'm not going to be alive for much longer. First time I said to myself that night, I remember I was walking back from a grocery store because I walked to a donut store and tried to buy a donut at 3 o'clock in the morning for a quarter. That was all I had in my pocket. And the lady said she was going to call the cops on me if I didn't leave her store. When I was walking back, I just remember saying, you're going to die soon. And I knew it. Wow. That's it was, powerful. I, I, you know, I was buying heroin. I was a speedball user. I mean, that's a cocktail that you, you know, you just don't mess with. It's just uh, a super dangerous cocktail. You don't ever hear about anybody speedballing that. And, and for people who don't know what speedballing is, can you kind of let them a little bit? Um, yeah. So to give you an idea of what my speedball looked like, it was between a half a gram of cocaine and a gram of cocaine mixed with about $40 worth of heroin at the same time. And wow, so at once? At once. Oh, bro, I was shooting 480 milligram Oxycontins at a time. Dude, that tolerance is, is a lot. Wow. I, yeah, it's I, crazy I, that, that people, you're still here today. 
and that's not a joke. Like when when I wasn't when I wasn't shooting up pills, I was using 14 milligram oxycontins a day, a quarter ounce of cocaine, no problem, every single day. Wow. And I was selling, selling pills and selling cocaine, you know, pulling in, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a day selling drugs in the beginning. You know, when I was when I was able to keep up, when I started smoking meth, I was staying up for so long, my opioid addiction had like quadrupled because I was never sleeping. I was constantly awake and constantly withdrawing. And so then I started running out of money, running out of friends. Then I couldn't keep up with the sales. And so I was at the bottom and I switched sides. I went to the other side of town. I went to West Fresno and started buying black tar heroin and cocaine from over there. Now, obviously, the cocaine that I was buying wasn't uh, the good cocaine that I was getting originally. So it was easy for me to do a half a gram to a gram. It just wasn't – the purity wasn't enough to um, do what I needed. But I was I was reckless. And people knew it. And at my bottom, that's why I accepted you're just going to die soon. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's I, – I, it is so hard to fully put that into perspective of what that, that what that's like, you know, to, to just accept that you're going to die. Like, I just didn't know how to get I, – I didn't know how to get off, bro. I tried to go to Oregon. Yeah. My friends bought me a bus ticket, owns 400 acres of vineyards in Oregon, wanted to make me the ranch manager, family friend. Went up there, got on the bus. I got on the bus, had drugs, but was, I ran out of drugs as soon as we got to Oregon. And within seven days, I hitchhiked to the Greyhound station and snuck on the Greyhound bus and got back to California. I literally could not quit, and I had no idea how – I was going to stop because everything that I was trying was not working. And yeah, so for there the were so many nights where I told myself I was going to change, and the next morning I woke up, I would just continue to stand out of it. Shoot, the next morning, how about you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm not going to do it today, but by noon you're already doing it, or by 10 o'clock you're already doing it. Like it's, yep. And it's not drugs. There's all kinds of things that, that trip us up that way. I mean, I guarantee you right now somebody's listening to the podcast and they told themselves, I'm not going to do whatever activity it is that they're trying to change. And within a few hours, they're going to be doing that activity and they're going to ask themselves, why can't I just stop this? Drug addiction was exactly the same, only sometimes the hold is so much stronger. And so for the next six months, I slept on the street. I mean, I slept behind dumpsters. I slept in dirt fields. I mean, I slept in a water heater closet one time. If I was lucky, I got a Motel 6. If, if if I was able to score some people some stuff from the project, some pills, you know, I might get a couch for the night because I hooked them up with the drugs. But for the most part, it was, it was me by myself experiencing all of that shame and guilt. Um, and then I had a spiritual experience on January 21st, 2007. And that was why I am sober today. I had a sudden spiritual Did you know about that? Yeah, so I had a friend call me in 2005, and he said that God had given him a vision, and that in this vision, I was going to get three significant chances. And if I didn't stop doing what I was doing before these three significant chances took place, I would go to prison. And he was, like, crying on the phone telling me this. And, and I'm not a God. I wasn't a God person at this time. So it was like, okay. You know, but I, I, I don't know. I held on to it in my heart. Well, in 2006, I had, you know, still had a girlfriend, but, you know, my girlfriend would, like, drop me off to sleep on the street, and then she would go bang all the drug dealers to keep herself going. Um, and that's kind of the luxury of a female. And I guess I don't know if you can call it a luxury because 
once you get into the area I'm in now where you're facilitating people into treatment, females have so much more stuff that keeps them using because a lot of times the way they find drugs is, you know, spreading their legs and sexual stuff, and a lot of that leads to very scarring things for females. Well, that's what she would do. She would drop me off, and then she would go bang the drug dealers to keep her addiction going. Well, one time we had a car that we borrowed, and uh, we got pulled over, and it was actually the third time I had been pulled over in four days. So I got pulled over two days in a row. Third day, I didn't get pulled over. The fourth day, I got pulled over in a car with her. And this car had fake tags, no registration. It hadn't been registered in five years, this car. She had no license on her. There was no insurance for the car. I was on felony probation. So the two times before this I was that I was pulled over previously, I was pulled out of the car, searched. They ran my name, asked me questions. This time, I get pulled over in front of the college, and she's driving. She, and the cop said, you know, the tags are fake on this car. I had no idea they were fake. We borrowed the car. Mm-hmm. And immediately I was in my, my heart sank because it's like, damn, I, I, here we go. I got a 10-year prison lid. I'm on felony probation. I got drugs in my pocket, a backpack full of needles. She's got drugs on her. I'm, and this car is basically stolen. So I'm going to get a violation of probation, possession of narcotics, and grand theft auto. Well, wow. the cop didn't, the cop didn't ask for if anybody was on parole or probation and no one got pulled out of the car. She came back to the car with a fix it ticket, yellow piece of paper and told us to take the car home to who we borrowed it from immediately and drop it off. Wow. So that was chance number one? Three. Cause I got pulled three, over. Okay. Two. I got pulled oh, over. I got three, you. I got you. Okay. I understand. Three times yeah. in three days. This was the last time I got pulled over for third chance. Okay. And I remember when she walked back to the car, I was like, that was the chance that Adam was talking about. And my girlfriend says, what are you talking about? I was like, he said I was going to get three significant chances. And if I didn't stop doing what I was doing before these chances took place, I was going to go to prison. I was like, I'm going to prison soon. That was November... That was November of 2006. January of 2007, I was invited to church by a drug dealer I was working with in the projects of West Fresno. He ended up, turned out that he was a minister in this church. Um, when I tell the, my story to the church folks, they all scratch their head. Wait a minute, you had a drug dealer that was a minister in church. And I tell them, yeah, it sounds crazy, but I don't know what's crazier. A drug dealer is a minister or a flaming bush talking to a guy telling him what he needs to do for God. So, God just does things the way he does things and the way we need things done in our crossroad moment. And in my crossroad moment, I needed a drug dealer minister to invite me to church to experience what I experienced that day. And I don't remember anything about the church service of what the, or what the pastor said other than there was an altar call. And I went up to this altar call and the pastor laid his hands on me and said that God had favored me my entire life and everything that I had done, and that I didn't have to worry anymore. He was going to remove me from my addiction. That was January 21st, 2007. I was arrested the very next day in a home that I broke into that was up for rent. um, The lady came in to show the house and 
saw me laying on the floor with a bag of needles next to me, tried to wake me up. I wasn't waking up. So she called the cops and the paramedics to report a drug overdose. Well, I woke up with four cops coming into the room with their guns drawn, and that was it. That was the uh, that was the end of lying. That was the end of cheating. That was the end of stealing. That was the end of trying everything in my power to quit. That was the end of the running, because realistically, that's what I was doing in my addiction. I was running. And not physically running. I was running from myself. I was running from my true being. I was running mm-hmm. from calling. I was running from my purpose. I was running from everything that God had designed me to be. And that was over. So within 30 days, I was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. And that's when I got to, I got to prison 30 days later. And I read that quote, um, that you've heard, heard me talk about. And that quote. Yeah, it's a favorite quote. Yeah. It, uh, the favorite quote. So I, I, I get to prison and I know I'm not supposed to be there. And obviously I'm scared. Everybody that goes to prison is scared their first day. There's just no, no way around it. If you, you say you're not scared, you're lying. So I look, I remember looking up on the ceiling in my, in my prison, prison cell and I, I read these words that said, be careful what you think because your thoughts become your words. Be careful what you say because your words become your actions. Be careful what you do because your actions become your habits. Be careful what you make a habit because your habits become your character and your character becomes your destiny. And I think that was the first time in my life where a quote actually meant something. You know, because like we could go through life and read all of these quotes on Instagram or or in these books, and it's like, oh, yeah, these are fluffy and cool. Well, no, they actually have a lot of meaning, especially if somebody's lived them as their truth. You know, like John Wooden, I love John Wooden quotes. I mean, there is one of the greatest coaches of all time. His quotes have so much truth to them, especially in what he was doing and their application to not only sport but life. And so I finally, like, read this quote, and I connect. Like, I'm connecting with this quote because when I was in third grade, I wanted to be like Dennis Rodman and Allen Iverson. So I started thinking yeah. like him. I could act like him. What I didn't realize was is that guys like Rodman and, and Iverson are not the rule. They're the exception. Most people with their attitudes and their way of doing this, conducting themselves, they don't get million-dollar contracts. They find themselves in unemployment lines. They find themselves blaming everybody for their problems, the Terrell Owens cancer syndrome, the the uh, syndrome of players that, you know, blame everybody for their problems but them, themselves. Carmelo Anthony is a perfect example. The guy will never take accountability for himself, but he's not the rule. Most people with his mindset don't make that to where they're yep. at. So I connected with this quote, and I used it for the inspiration of what would get me from that prison cell to what I'm at today. Wow, man, that's that's truly the whole, that whole entire story is just amazing and is breathtaking. And I love that. What do you think was different, like in that moment that you read that quote and it resonated with you, opposed to you know all the other conversations you had with friends who trying to get you to change? Like, what was different in that moment, right there? Number one thing, humility. Number one thing, humility. Yeah. And, and here's why. 
when I went into that church January 21st, 2007, you couldn't tell me what to do. When I went into that church January 21st, 2007, I was uncoachable. I couldn't learn anything because you couldn't tell me what to do because I was the shit. And even though I was homeless, I'll figure it out. I'll score a bag of dope and I'll get back on my feet, get myself an apartment, whatever it is. I could figure it out. But when I left that church in January 21st, 2007, I realized I'm not shit. I don't know anything. I'm not in control of my life. I'm not the one that made this world. And there really is a God greater than myself that has created this entire experience that I'm living. And I'm lucky to be alive. So when I went into that prison cell and I started reading that quote, I didn't read it as a know-it-all. I read it as a student who was looking for opportunities to learn in every single situation that I was in, including sitting in a prison cell. So they weren't just words anymore. They had meaning. And so when I read those words, the, the ability to learn from it and say that, you know what, I think I need this, the quote came to life. And so because the quote came to life, I started applying it to my own life and looking at the holes in myself and recognizing that, fuck, this is 100% on. When I started my meditation, that's why I went back to third grade when I wanted to be like Dennis Rodman and, and Alan Iverson, and I accepted that mentally. I remember accepting that mentally. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a cognitive thought. I want to be like Alan Iverson. It was something that was taking place in, like, the subconscious level. Yeah. Because I started changing the way I walked. I started changing the way I was treating people. And I realized I need to reshape that moment and take all of my strengths that I have to this moment, because I do have strengths that have carried with me even through my bottom bottom uh, moments, there were still things that I was given from God that were my strength. I need to carry those over into the new me, but I need to reshape these flaws that I developed over time through thinking and action and habit creating, which obviously over time became who I was. And so then I created this thing called the micro process, which isn't anything new. I mean, many people uh, talk about this micro-process in maybe different ways, but I told myself that I would get to the Olympics because I really had four goals. I had four goals. One, to become a professional BMX racer. Two, to go to the Olympics. Three, to start a nonprofit organization for kids using action sports. And four, to become a public speaker. They were goals, but they were also something I felt like God was calling me to do. And so I said, I'm going to get to the Olympics because I learned how to brush my teeth every single day. At that time in my life, at 23 years old and made by 12 California penitentiaries, so I didn't know how to brush my teeth every single day. I didn't brush my teeth when I was on the street. I didn't brush my teeth when I was a kid. My parents were were really parents, but the routine part maybe not as good, so I wasn't brushing my teeth all the time. So I learned how to brush my teeth every single day, and I told myself, okay, now that I've learned how to brush my teeth every single day, I need to learn how to make my bed every single day. After I learned how to make my bed, I learned how to organize my stuff. After I learned how to organize my stuff, then I started working on physically working out every single day, training 
to be, be a professional BMX racer, even though I wasn't going to be able to train on a BMX bike for another two years before I got out. And so basically what I was doing was I was developing small form success. And using Dude, sorry, I, I, that's that's something I sorry to interrupt, but that's something that I I talk about in all of my presentations too. Because when I first started out, you know, in recovery, it mm. you feel like you have no confidence, you have no belief in yourself, and right. by by doing those little things, you're able to build that confidence, gain momentum, and you're like, oh shit, maybe I can do this life thing just by doing those small little things. Right, it's it's the things that uh, it's the things that most people see as insignificant that are actually exactly. very significant. Exactly. That are very you know, significant. If you, if you can't brush your teeth and make your bed, how are you expected to run an organization, or how are you expected to influence other people if you can't do right. the dishes correctly? Right, and that was that was my thing, you know. If I how because I felt like God wanted to take me to the Olympics, right? And I knew that, but it's like, how am I going to? go to the Olympics if I can't brush my teeth every single day. Because at that level, the discipline of those athletes is some of the greatest discipline you can see in any realm of humanity. Waking up at the same time, yep. eating, eating the right foods, weighing foods, counting calories, mm-hmm. uh, the effort level in training, the yeah. discipline in their training, the no-taking days off, you know, massages, active recovery, all the little stretching, all the little things that most people would think don't really matter in sport that have to be done on a daily basis for four years just to get to one event. And so you know, how, how you do, do one thing is how you do everything. That's right. And so I built this over two years. I had just enough time to build a routine, to build a plan, to become a master of my routine to be disciplined, and obviously in all of this disciplining myself through some of these small routines or small form successes that led me to where I'm at today, I spent a lot of time to myself. And I think that this is the component that most people neglect, and that is mm-hmm. the time where you can only hear and feel yourself. No TV, no friends, no activities, no trips. It's just you, your brain, your soul, and your spirit. And I heard this thing the other day that relates with that. You have to think about what you consistently think about. Right. We have to, you know, people just have these thoughts, and they never think about why they're having these thoughts or where they come from. So you have to think about what you think about. It's, it's really, you know, the source of self-awareness is meditation yep. and time to yourself. You'll never figure out who you are, one, until you accept who you are as being enough, and then, two, spending the time to yourself so you can examine, why do I feel this way? Where is this coming from? What is the motive behind the motive? Why, am I, why do I want to do what I want to do? Because why you want to do what you want to do, there's typically something behind that that is the real reason you want to do what you want to do. And so... I spent an, an uh, man. I spent hours each day meditating, processing, meditating, processing, meditating, and processing, and that allowed me to build a level of self-awareness that was a good foundation for when I got out to be able to cope with life. 
in a new way than what I was doing before. And so I got out December 13, 2008. So I did uh, just about two years, 23 and a half months. And within five months, I raced my first professional BMX race. I hadn't touched a bike in seven wow. years. Took third place at my first race. People said I couldn't do what I was going to do, but I don't, they didn't understand what I was doing when I was in prison. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people knew that I was obviously talented, but it was like I had a talent. You know, I wasn't just good at riding a bike. I was great at riding a bike, and I never even exercised that talent. So for me to get out of prison more physically fit than I'd ever been in my entire life, all I, it's me to me, riding a bike is like riding a wheelie at all levels. You know, a lot of people say you, once you learn how to ride a wheelie, you never forget. Well, for me, it was like racing and riding my bike at a high level is something I'll never forget. It's just because of my talent allows me to do that. And so within the first year, I won five races, moved up to the Olympic level. My first year in the Olympic level, I made six finals. And to give you an idea, I mean, I've been a coach now since 2012. And maybe one or two guys can move up from the lower pro class and make one final in three years. And I made six in my wow. first year. Uh, I blew my knee out, though, in 2011. Had a knee surgery with no pain medication, and that was when I started shifting directions to public speaking. I started my nonprofit organization in 2012, shortly after I blew my knee out. And started yeah, can coaching. you tell us a little bit about the Free World Project and how if anyone out there listening right now, you know, wants to help or get involved and how they could possibly do so? So the Free Will Project is, it's not that it's not in existence anymore. It's on complete hold because my public speaking has me on the road so frequently, and I tried to hire people to run it. And um, unfortunately, it's hard to find people with the same level of passion that you have. And raising money for nonprofit organizations is extremely hard to do. So but basically what I did was I developed a program that used my gifts, my talents, and my passion to help other people. And so extreme sports or action sports was it. So we developed a summer camp, and the summer camp would be built on the idea that kids would come to the summer camp for the experience. But we didn't really care about the experience. We cared about what they learned through the experience. And so we built built a school system and we built a financial system, and the school system would focus on leadership qualities, your attitude, choice-making skill set, respect for others, community service, staying away from drugs. And the financial course would focus on teaching kids how to spend, save, and share money. And we would do that by paying the kids each day and telling them that the $300 bike that they're going to get when they graduate with the helmet and backpack and all this other stuff that we developed through sponsorships like Tilly's and Element Skateboards and Parl Bicycles, that you had to earn it by yeah. saving money, just like we do in the real world with our jobs. And so we weren't giving them anything. They were actually purchasing it from us, quotes, purchasing it from us on graduation day. And then that developed into an after-school program that was built around the same idea, only we would go to a school in, in an at-risk area, Fresno County, and meet with these kids twice a week, take them to the freestyle park, help them with their homework, go through the leadership course and the financial course. And at the end of the six months when they got out of school, they would have a $400 bike, helmet, locks, 
you know, they were basically swagged out with clothes and, you know, sunglasses and backpacks and the kids loved it. We were were taking kids from, you know, we had one kid that was a a gang member that was a .7 GPA, got him up to a 3.0, a 4.0 by the time he got into high school and started talking about going to college. So we had a lot of success with some of these kids over the course of, you know, five, about five years for it. Um, my speaking took off and, and I had to change directions. So yeah, the free will project is, it's on hold right now. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with it. I don't know if I want to change, you know, kind of mission to something more in line with what I'm doing now today or, um, put it to rest and donate the stuff that we, we accumulated back into the community. Yeah, but either way, you know, whatever you decide to do with it, Tony, um, I know it'll be a good decision and you can just tell, you know, by, you know, you, by hearing your voice, by how you talk, that, you know, it, the true passion of yours is just to help people, just to add value and hope inspire people. Now, um, kind of a segue into that, what's your favorite part about, you know, public speaking and being able to go to all these different schools and be able to share your story and inspire other, other you know, the next generation? So, and it, it honestly depends. It depends on the audience, right, because my, my, my empathy and compassion is, is is dynamic based on the audience, right? So if I'm in seventh, if I'm speaking to seventh and eighth graders, the level of compassion is so much more tender at that age because we're talking about mold, we're talking about moldable human beings. They haven't made those life changing choices yet. They're seeking influence. They're seeking role models, and everything that they do is so important. But they're also so fragile and they're also so innocent still at that age, but they're so close to be breaking that innocence. They're so close to taking foot and stepping on the path that is going to lead them to their life experience that they remember. Because prior to that, what do we remember? Going to recess and playing basketball at recess or running around the yard yeah. and chasing the world. Like post seventh grade, you know, we can start thinking back to life-changing decisions, memories that create wounds, memories that create scars that we never forget. So there's a lot of compassion and empathy in a tender level there. When I get into high school, it's so much more different because now it's serious. Now my empathy and compassion is switched. I don't want to say it's not there, but there's more of an urgency in a high school crowd. You have to I guard. Think, I think that age group is probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the most probably difficult age group to connect with. For me, no. It's actually no. The yeah, best. well, obviously for you, you do great at it. See the messages you get all the time, but um, for most right. speakers that I hear, oh, yeah, they yeah, think yeah, that yeah. age group is, is the hardest is the hardest to get kind of to connect with and to be able to break through their barriers. Right, and I think that that's. A lot of that has to do with the average speaker at a high school crowd now is is aged out. Um, and I don't want to say that they would typically be aged out, but the millennials, so like I'm at the cusp of a millennial, right? So I think my age and younger up to a certain point are considered millennials. Well, we started growing up or experiencing life in a different way because of technology. Anybody that's older than me doesn't quite understand the technology portion and what we were experiencing as kids growing up. And so I think that they're just not able to come in in a relatable fashion because 
there was a, a, a sudden disconnect in the things that they grew up with and the things that they experienced. And I'm right on that cusp where, you know, I'm still into all of the things that the younger generation is into. And so while I'm speaking about my story, one, it's never a lecture. I don't lecture anybody. I don't tell any kids they don't need to use drugs. I don't do any of that. I tell my life story and the way I thought and the way I talked and the way I walked and the consequences that came with those. And in a high school crowd, my favorite thing is the urgency. People will always notice there's a higher level of intensity at the high school level for me because it's so important that they understand that one choice can change the rest of your life. You guys are now at the age where if you get behind a car and you've been drinking and you kill somebody, you're done. If you're a guy... I had someone in high school do that. He's still in prison. He was there in 2006. He's still there. Right. Or if you're a guy and you think that taking advantage of girls is fun and you get, and you get caught doing that, you're done. If... You get in a car and your friend's been drinking and is driving and they crash the car, you're putting your life at risk. I mean, there's all kinds. Of, if you don't pay attention in school or you drop out of school, I don't want to say you're done, but you're limiting yourself to what life is going to look like. See, we don't in high school, we don't think about what the future looks like because we do think we know everything. I mean, and that's generational, right? High school kids think that they know everything. They just think that they know everything, but they don't realize is that when you get out of high school, life starts. And the habits and discipline and routine that you created in high school, most of us will take to the cemetery 50 years later. Yep, exactly. And I try to. I have an 18-year-old brother. I try to explain that to him. He spends eight hours playing Fortnite a day. I try, you know, there's no problem with video games, but I try to explain to him you have to develop the habits and the tendencies now. And, you know, I, it, it just like I said, I think he has to almost experience it for himself to know that. Right, right. And so that's my favorite part about high schools is the urgency. Division One sports programs, favorite part about it is the passion because I am one of them. I see myself as one of them. While I'm telling my story, they realize that, okay, he's one of us. And now it's like discipline, people, discipline. Every little choice matters. And I get real intense during the microprocess portion because – trying to tell them that, look, I had to develop this stuff in a prison cell. Don't develop this stuff in a prison cell. Develop this stuff in a moment right now that most people never get to experience because soon this moment's going to end and you're going to move on in life and you're no longer going to be an athlete. Communities is tons of compassion because I'm going into communities sometimes where three people in that county a day die from drug Mm -hmm. overdose. But I get to inspire them that, look, Drug addiction is not the end. It doesn't have to be the end. There's a way out, and in the way out, there's a life of serenity, there's a life of purpose, there's a life of success, or there's just a life of just being happy and sober. And so I think my favorite thing about public speaking is it's different at every, it's different in every location, but I get so much from it when I finish. When I turn the mic off and I walk off stage, sometimes I wonder if I got more out of it than they did. Yeah, I, I completely can resonate with that because I've definitely felt that way before as well. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, I, I can't even explain it, but sometimes you almost need, you know, their messages and stuff like that as much as they need to hear your message. So I see the messages that um, you get on, you know, a daily and weekly basis from these kids. 
and it they truly make the hairs like all the hairs stand up on my body. These messages that you get, and you know, I'm not even involved, so I can't imagine how that makes you feel. Um, oh, dude, it's great. Hey, man. I, so tomorrow, I'm I'm flying this kid out to my my house to my studio because I'm going to record a podcast with him, and then I'm going to take him to Hollywood um, to my to some of the film studio that I work with. But he heard my speech a year and a half ago. And the kid, a teacher had told me a story, and I said, I need to talk to this kid. So I called the kid, and he's telling me the story of what happened the day that I came to speak. You know, he thought that this is just going to be another drug speech. Who cares? He was on drugs himself. He was using heroin. Two of his buddies had already died from overdoses. This is a high school kid. And one yeah. of the worst, worst counties in the country when it comes to uh, opioid overdoses. He said, I started talking. And he said, you were nothing like any speaker I've ever heard. And he said, and I started identifying with how you felt and how you thought and how your friends were. And he said, and he goes, I'll never forget it. He goes, I still get goosebumps today thinking about what I was feeling when you were talking. And he said, I just knew I needed to change my life and then it needed to happen soon. And he said the very next week, the Marines came in, the recruiters, and he said he just felt like God was telling him, this is the opportunity to get out. And so he signed up for the Marines, and he's now a Marine, is no longer using drugs, and is wow. serving in the military. And so I said, bro, I want to fly you to my house, and I want to record a podcast, take you to Hollywood, film you, and take you shopping, and, and just totally hook this kid up, uh, because I'm proud of him. And I want yeah, that's people. Fucking, that's awesome. That's awesome. And and I want people to know, like, because a lot of times people ask me, "Do you think that this actually works? Like, do you think people actually change their lives because of your speech?" Well, I don't know. You've seen some of the message. I get messages every week, sometimes from people that heard my message seven years ago, that are still motivated by my speech, that are changing their lives because of it. And here's a kid. It was on drugs, destined to be dead, especially in the county he's growing up in, where fentanyl is the the king of the town. And it's like he changed his life. And it's like, and that's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start promoting this stuff and telling kids, you know what? If you change your life or your life changed as a result of my speech, I want to know about it because I'm looking for certain individuals that touch me with their story based on what my story does, and I'll take you somewhere. We'll go on and that only makes your story and your speeches in the future more powerful because they're like, oh, well, you know, Mike did it. You know, why why can't I, you know? Oh, right. And I just want to, hey, you know what, bro? I look at this thing as, you know what? What does it hurt me to spend some money on somebody else that's doing the right thing? And what does it hurt me to document all of these people that I think are, you know, great parts of – what a story has been able to do. And it's not about me. It's the story, right? The story is bigger than yeah. me. I'm just a conduit. I'm just the carrier of the story and the message. And the message is, is truth. And there's a lot of people that are carrying messages of truth. There's a lot of people that are living out their truth. And I just want to be able to help people with that. And I want people to feel like, you know what? You should feel proud of yourself. You should feel good about this, and this should motivate you even more. And that's kind of my goal with this kid is to to get him to experience something, you know, by coming to my house and being in the studio and going to Hollywood and taking him shopping and doing these things. I want him to never forget tomorrow and Sunday. 
Yeah, and dude, that to... script is almost like a movie. You know, like you don't hear about that happening. You know, it's right. It could literally be a fucking movie script. Someone comes in, changes his life. He goes to the army. He comes out, goes to Hollywood. Um, that's that's truly amazing, man. It's 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 unbelievable. I, and this is why I fucking love what I do. It's not about my car. It's not about my house. It's not about my shoe collection. It's not about my. Supreme those are byproducts of doing the those right are, thing. And right, I, I, that, that's just stuff I get to enjoy. But that is nothing yeah. compared to what to picking this young man up tomorrow at the airport yeah. is going to feel like for me over the next forty-eight hours. Because it's not about so me. Cool, man. I, ho- I hope you post some uh, some stuff about you know on your story. And everything like that, because I definitely am interested to, uh, you know, kind of meeting this kid through social media and seeing and seeing your guys' weekend together. Absolutely. Uh, I've got a buddy that's going to be helping me. I'm going to try and cut, like, an IGTV segment awesome. uh, with, with the entire experience. And, uh, you know, obviously I'll be talking about him on my story and stuff, because really what I'm trying to do is motivate kids. Hey, you know what? If, if you're following me and my story has made an impact on you, I'm listening. And I'm here for you. Yeah, yeah, you care. You care. I care. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I tell kids, I reply to every DM. I mean, outside the ones that are just stupid. You know, some of those I don't, I don't reply to. But, you know, I'm listening. I care. And I love doing this. And I believe that because I love helping people, it, that that's the root of my success. It's never been about cars or money or anything. Dude, I spoke for free for four years before I ever got paid. I was just about to ask you, how long was it again? Because I knew you told me. That's four years. That's awesome. That's, you know, yeah, that's crazy. Four years. Girls, I would date girls, and their parents would be like, when are you going to get a real job? I'm like, well, I yeah, think so this is going to work out. That time? You just had, like, side jobs? And stuff well, like I was racing. I was racing, so I was saving some money, but my parents came yeah. back into my life. Thankfully, my parents came back into my life, and their thing was, if you are training and racing, we will support you. But the talk came after I blew my knee out. I'll never forget it. The talk came in my, in, in my office at the house for the Free Will Project. My mom stopped me, and she said, son, you're almost 30 years old, and you're still living with your dad and I. I got out of prison at 25, folks. And she says, you need to, th- you need to start thinking about how you're going to make a living. And I was like, Mom, I'm trying. I'm trying. Like, you know, like I'm trying to get paid through this nonprofit thing. I'm trying to get my speaking where I can get paid. I'm doing everything I can. Mm-hmm. But that was that was almost a chokehold moment, dude. Because it was like, I'm, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm destined for a normal job. I don't feel like I'm supposed to be clocking in and clocking out my life. So much more All purposeful. of the pain and adversity you went through was for a purpose. Right. But that's, hey, this is everybody. It's not just me, dude. And in 2015, yeah. I didn't speak one time in 2015. The year before I blew up, and I wouldn't even say that I'd blown up, but the year before I started making a living, a good one, I didn't speak one time. I was ready to quit. Wow. So what what got you back on the horse? I reexamined what I was I wasn't good at, and that was something I could never do when I was was my old self. I could not be coachable. Uh, I was unwilling to learn, and I was unwilling to change okay. direction or sh- shift my approach. 
So I shifted my approach at how I was marketing myself as a speaker. I had enough experience now at this time to understand what my messaging was, who my audience was, and how I delivered that message. And so I remarketed myself, started growing my hair out because I think the people, you know, they love the story. But when you're talking about selection committees that are 40 and 50 years old and they see a a bald head tattoos prison, they think I'm going to come in with this scared straight convict story. That's not what I do. So I grew my hair out. Uh, as much as my hair was fashionable, I really grew it out so I looked softer. And and that that message that you just said, you change your action steps. You change what you were doing because I feel that so many people, they try to reach a goal, they try to do something in life, and then they're just like, oh, well, shit, I'm not good enough now. No, that it doesn't mean you're not good enough. It just means what you're doing right now isn't working. So you working. have to switch it up a little bit. That's right. And, that's, and that should be a constant – and listen, this is where your routine and writing things down is so important because you have to be able to document where you're making mistakes. So you know what you, so you know what works and what's not working and you make those shifts of what's not working with trying new things, but keeping the things that work in the same spot. Cause not everything you do is just going to work. A lot of stuff that you do will work, but the things that aren't working may be stopping us from reaching where we want to go. Exactly. That's that's such a powerful point. I hope everyone understands that. Just because you're not reaching your goal doesn't mean you're not good enough. It just means you may need to change your action steps. Right. Um, I, 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 like I said, in 2015, I didn't speak one time, and now I'm, I'm one of the most sought-after substance abuse speakers in the country. <laughs> that's so cool, man. That just goes to show never give up and, you know, always have faith in yourself and faith in God. That's 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 awesome, Tony. Now, one last question to kind of um, close things up before we talk about where everyone can find you on social media, your website, et cetera. Now, if someone's listening to this right now, and it, they don't have to be necessarily struggling with drugs, but or relationships, depression, failure, um, whatever it is, what's that one concept or one piece of advice that you would give someone that they can apply to their lives today to hopefully make an improvement? Stop listening to yourself. What do you mean stop, by that? Stop listening to yourself. So if you're struggling in addiction, you're listening to yourself. You're devising your own plans. You're devising your own routes. None of those are going to work. If they were good, they would have already worked. If you have depression, mm-hmm. one of the biggest issues is you're listening to yourself, and yourself wants to take you to the past, shame you, guilt you, self-pity you, blame others. You have to stop listening to yourself. If you're going through something in life, one of the – best things that we can do is stop listening to ourselves and start reaching out to someone else. Let someone else give you the information that you need. Let somebody else devise the plan to get you out of the rut that you're in. Because if you were that great, you wouldn't be in the situation that you're in right now. I don't believe that we're uh. supposed to be, we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to live life alone and we're not supposed to go through life and the struggles that we experience alone. There is somebody else that has experienced the same thing that you're going through and has found a way out, and I guarantee it wasn't by themselves. It was by grabbing the hand of somebody else and letting them do the hard work, letting them show you the steps that you need to take. Once you start taking those steps and you start being freed from those shackles or the chains, then you're able to turn around and do the same thing for somebody else. And when you turn around and do the same thing for somebody else, there is a universal 
power behind what it does in, in, in relation to pushing you up the mountain at a much greater velocity. So stop listing your dog. Yeah. That's, that's the Tony, man. That, that hits me so hard because I felt for so long, and I'm sure a lot of other people resonate with that too, that they feel kind of like their mind is their worst enemy. You know? <laughs> mine. Well, it's mine. I mean, I wanted to do this podcast a couple weeks ago, but I've been going through some personal things, and it's because I'm having to work through the stuff that my mind's going through. I am my own worst enemy, no doubt. Yep. And, 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 and sometimes we have to realize, and that's something that I'm still working with right now, is that you're like life is cyclical. You know, you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, and it's okay not to feel 100% sometimes. And it's okay not to, you know, grind for 14 to 16 hours a day every single day when you're kind of emotionally worn out. You know, it's okay to kind of take a step back and realize that you need to work on yourself before you can go out and do things for other people. Dude, I'm going to take it one step further for you. It's okay. And it's normal. Yeah, it's completely it's normal. normal. Yep, exactly. It's normal. Like, you know, for me, getting out of a relationship, like feeling sad and, and thinking about that person and wondering if that person's thinking about me, that's all normal. Yeah. Because that person is doing the same thing, waking up sad with anxiety, thinking about me, wondering if I'm thinking about her. Like, that's normal. What you do, man. What you do with that normal and how you react to that normal can take you from normal to abnormal. And both exactly negative and positive. What do I do in that time? I double down on writing down the things that I need to do for the day. I double down on my journaling. I double down on my praying. I double down on making sure I'm just taking care of the bare necessities until the sadness wears off and I can start going after the bigger tasks again. Exactly, man. And I think social media has such a large part today. When people feel down, when they feel depressed, like, why do I feel like this? This, you know, Tony doesn't feel like this, or you know, uh, Gary Gary V never feels like this. Why, why am I feeling like this right now? Anyone who's listening, it's normal and it's okay. Right. What, how you react to it is what takes you from being normal yep, to normal. Yeah, exactly. And how long you stay in that headspace. It's okay to stay there for some time, but you can't stay there forever. No, uh, but I think the way to get out is to have a plan. Exactly, yeah. man. And journaling, I think, like the point you brought up, is a huge deal, kind of letting all of your – it's something that when you put your thoughts on paper, it just um, it makes them – you kind of release them. When you're able to write them down on paper, you kind of can let them go a little more easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Tony, dude, your story, your inspiration, you can tell just by your voice and, you know, by what you're doing for this kid this weekend, that you truly care for others and your mission is to just make this world better and to influence people. So, um, like I said at the beginning, you're a true role model of mine. Um, you know, my dream is to, you know, be one day uh, be in a position to be influencing as many people as you are. So just thank you for you know, taking the time and showing me that it is possible because sometimes I have days too, man, where I'm like, fuck, am I good enough? Can I do this? And hearing that, what you just said, that you didn't speak for all of 2015, um, really provided me some hope and inspiration. So thank you. Um, now, I'm sure after listening to this, a lot of people are going to want to follow you, 
Um, they're going to want, want to listen to your podcast, Morning Stories as well. So tell everyone where you can where they can find you. Absolutely. So if you enjoyed the story and you want deeper mechanics to what I went through, or you want some of the entertainment side of you know the stories, you can look me up on iTunes. I'm on Google Play, on uh, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio. I've got basically my podcast everywhere except for Spotify right now, and it's called One Choice. You can search my name, One Choice, Tony Hoffman, and you'll find my podcast. If you have uh, personal questions, you're struggling with addiction, maybe somebody you know needs treatment, you're not sure what to do, you can find me on my website at TonyHoffmanSpeaking.com. You can find me on Instagram at Tony M. Hoffman. If you have a question there, you can also send me a question or just follow my journey and check out the things that I'm doing. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook, Tony Hoffman Speaking, and you can see my public figure page there. I actually don't use Facebook uh, on a on a personal level, but I do have it for a public figure page. And, really, I want to just say thanks to anybody that's listened for, for over an hour to my story, and I hope that you were able to gain some piece of knowledge that helps you where you're at in your life right now if, and, and maybe share it with somebody else so we can, the story can continue to, to touch people. Because remember, it's not about me. It's about the story and what the story is able to do for others. Amen, brother. Couldn't have said it any better myself. So anyone, guys, pull out your phones right now. Go follow Tony on Instagram. He's constantly putting out great content um, and inspiring other people. So once again, Tony, um, thanks so much for, you know, joining us on Jimmy D Radio. Really appreciate it, man. Jimmy, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, bro. We'll stay in touch. All right. Talk to you, Tony. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. What an amazing story that is. I still can't believe he went from magazine covers to drug addict to homeless to prison to BMX World Championships Olympic Games, motivational speaking, starting nonprofit charity um, organizations. It's just truly mind-blowing. And it just goes to show any of you guys that are listening right now, no matter where the fuck you are in your life, no matter what the hell your circumstances are, that if you put your mind to it and you find something that is a passion of yours and that you truly love doing, you can do anything in this world. And one of the things I wanted to touch on one more time before I close things out is that Tony actually quit speaking in 2015 and now he's one of the most or the most sought after substance abuse speaker in the country. And it just goes to show that just because you're going out there and taking action and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, success doesn't come automatically. And like Tony said, the thing that changed for him is that he had to do some self-assessment. He had to look inside and he had to realize that, hey, maybe his way or his way of doing things at that time weren't the best way. He wasn't getting results. So just because you're going after a goal right now and you're not getting results, it doesn't mean you're not good enough. It doesn't mean you should quit and go do something else. It just means you need to change your action steps. You need to do a little self-assessment. You need to take a step back outside of the situation and Ask for help. Ask for help from other people. Ask for some constructive criticism, what their thoughts are, how you could improve. Because so many people do something for six months or a year or two and then, ah, fuck, I'm not successful yet. I guess this just isn't for me. Well, hey, 
What if Tony did that? What if he did? He's inspiring thousands and thousands of kids. If he just would have said, ah, I'm not successful yet. This just may not be for me. He spoke for free for seven years. Seven motherfucking years. That's true dedication. And the only reason I believe he was able to do that for so long is because of his why. His why was not because he wanted to get rich. His why was not because he wanted to travel the country as he's doing now. His why was because he wanted to help people. He truly cares and he just wants to share his story and hopefully shed some light and in, in perspective into other people's lives. So what an amazing guy. What an amazing human. And Tony, thanks again for coming on the show. If you guys haven't done so yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast if and only if you got some value out of this episode or another episode previous to this one. Um, By doing that, the more rates and subscribers I get, my podcast will be noted as new and noteworthy on iTunes, and that means more people will hear my story, more people will be able to hear Tony's story, and we'll be able to change and inspire more lives together. So I really need your help for that, guys. Because just like Tony, I just want to help motivate and inspire people across the world. So thank you guys so much again for tuning into Jimmy D Radio. I'm out.